Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and had put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord, uh, word of the Lord for, the people, uh, for the people of God. Amen. Good morning. Um, so we're going to be in John 13, 1 through 20. Um, let me pray real quick. Father, um, we need you to speak to us uh, through your word. Um, Spirit, we need you to take your word and to apply it to our hearts. And Jesus, we need to see you. Um, we need to see another glimpse of you. Lord, I just pray that uh, today as we hear and as we talk and we sing and we pray, um, that these words that we speak of you, um, we know that they fall so short of who you really are, the glory that you really have. Um, but help us to see a greater glimpse today. Help us to sing a greater song today. Help us to pray a greater prayer today. Help us help our hearts to feel rightly about you today. We ask that you would magnify Christ in his name. Amen. So when uh, Lucy, little Lucy, went to Narnia for the first time in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, her two brothers and her one sister did not believe her, no matter how much she described the lovely snowed wood that she had experienced through the wardrobe. A world, if Ed, a wardrobe is kind of hard to believe. Um, and if Edmund, her brother, would have believed her the first time, he would not have encountered the white witch and have been deceived. And so we're back in the Gospel of John today, and the melodic line, I want to focus on the melodic line. This is the thing that resounds all throughout, the note that is played in every chapter of John. The melodic line says something like this, and the elders worked on this, and this was one of our early drafts. If we summarized it to a word, we would say, believe. Why? Believe is used over a hundred times in the Gospel of John. It's the most used word. If we were to widen it out a little bit a little bit longer into like a sentence, if we were to whittle it down into a sentence, we'd say something like this. Believe through the testimony of Jesus' identity to receive life. Believe Jesus to receive life. 
John says it this way in John 20. These are written so that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in all 66 books of the Bible, we have a witness, a testimony, someone who has been to Narnia, someone who has seen God and comes back to us and testifies of this God, Jesus. And like Lucy's siblings, we have a choice. We can believe this testimony or we can not believe this testimony. And like in C.S. Lewis's book, the consequences for, be- for not believing the witness are grave. If Edmund had just believed Lucy the first time, he wouldn't have met the white witch. He wouldn't have been deceived by her. He wouldn't have betrayed his family. He wouldn't have, been, he wouldn't have led to the death of the great lion, Aslan. All those things wouldn't have happened if he just believed. And just like in the gospel, the consequences are grave for us. Life is at stake when we talk about the witness of Jesus in the, in the books of the Bible. Unbelief makes us vulnerable to the enemy. So as we kind of pick up uh, in John, I just want to kind of get us back up to speed. It's been a while. It's been a minute since we've been in John. We had previously, we had previously covered the first half of John. That's chapters one through two. Andreas Kostenberger calls this half the book of signs. And the reason he calls this the book of signs is in the first 12 chapters, there are seven signs that Jesus does. And then it concludes in John 12 with a meal with the person who the last sign was done to, Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and then Jesus has a meal with his family. And so then we stopped there, and that's really a good stopping point. That's the first half of the book. But the second half of the book, 13 through 21, is oftentimes called the book of glory. So we have book of signs, book of glory. It's called the book of glory because it's all about Jesus completing his earthly ministry. And glory has a kind of multi-layered meaning. When we think glory, right, we think, oh, this is good. It's something that's really good. Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to be magnified in the sight of others. But John uses it in a kind of double way. It stands for Jesus returning to the Father in glory, but it also stands for Jesus being crucified on a cross. Glory comes through the cross of Christ. On one side of the cross, we see death, shame, sinfulness, and wrath. But in light of the resurrection, we see the very instrument of glory and the renewing of all of creation, in a word, glory. So the second half of John is the book of glory. There's maybe another way you could think of it. There's another theme that kind of goes throughout 1 through 12 and then kind of continues into 13 through 21. In 1 through 12, Jesus often says, my hour has not yet come. And then starting in chapter 12 and 13, there's a hinge, there's a turn. It's no longer my hour has not come. Now it is my hour has come. And so you might think of it as the book of Jesus's hour, the book of glory, the book of Jesus's hour. So before we kind of dive into our text today, I want to do uh, two things. I want to briefly talk about the section of scripture that chapter 13 belongs to in John. And then the second thing I want to just point out an outline of our text today. So the first thing is this, chapter 13 starts off one of the most famous passages of all of scripture, or sections, if you will. Chapters 13 through 17 are a single unit, really even a single conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Oftentimes, this is called the upper room discourse. There's no longer pictures of the love of Christ can be mined in this cavern of light, the upper room discourse. The section then climaxes in chapter 7 when Jesus prays. And it, the whole chapter 17 is a high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for to his father, prays about his current disciples, and then covers all of you all as well and prays for everyone who would believe in his word afterward. And so we're starting off, we're quite literally setting the table for the upper room discourse. Now, Our section today, it sets the table for the discourse, but it also kind of outlines itself. If you just pay attention to what Christ is doing or what's being said about Christ or what Christ is saying, it kind of outlines itself. So we're going to have three points that we look at today. The first one comes from verses 1 through 3, which you find a kind of description 
of the knowledge and love of Christ. In verses 4 through 11, you see then that Christ's love drives him to action. He does something. There's actions of Christ. And then in verses 12 through 20, Christ explains his actions using words. And so we're going to look at the love of Christ, the actions of Christ, and the words of Christ. And yes, that spells law, because we will see the law of Christ, which is love, um, today in this passage. So let's look at the first uh, point. The first point is this. We ought to know the love of Christ for ourselves. Know the love of Christ for you. And this comes from verses 1 through 3. John writes this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So that's kind of the first part. So here we have two big themes of John coming to an end, and they're interesting enough, coming to an end together. In the very first verse, you have the theme of feasts. So just like there's seven signs, there's seven feasts scattered throughout the book of John. And in this, we have the reference to the seventh and final feast. Kind of interesting in that, it's the feast of the Passover, John mentions three feasts of the Passover. So not only is this the final of the seven feasts, it's also the final of the three Passover feasts. So there's our first theme. And then the next theme, I already mentioned it, right? We have the hour theme coming together. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And with Passover and departure in mind, we should naturally think of the Exodus. And so we see Exodus themes going on throughout our text. And we particularly see, in my opinion, enough about Jesus, it should make our brains explode and our hearts explode with joy. And so when we look at this, we see Jesus is the new Moses. He is about to Exodus. He is about to depart to go to be with his father who is in heaven, which begs the question, will he bring his people with him? Moses brought a people across the Red Sea? Will Jesus bring a people across the quote-unquote Red Sea? This will be answered later on in the Upper Room Discourse, so I'll leave you in uh, a steady awaiting of that answer. But then also we see that Jesus himself is the feast is full past because it is the last week of Christ, and in this week, Christ himself will be prepared and slaughtered like a lamb to also, so that the, the you know, so that God would pass over us, pass over our sins. But there's another twist to the story of Exodus here. You know, back in Exodus, you know, they had to slay lambs, they had to put it over doorposts, but it wasn't because of those lambs that God actually passed over them. You see, in Exodus, everyone had not the, the everyone who did not have the blood of the lamb on their, door, uh, their doorposts lost their firstborn, but the reality is the angel of death passed over, he passed over the firstborn of Exodus and then he put it on the firstborn of himself, Jesus himself. And so he's the Passover lamb who takes the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to his father. And so look at verse 1, this kind of last part of it. It says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to, his, to the end. His own refers to this idea that's been built up over the course of John. In a simple way of saying it, it refers to those who have been born again, those who have been born from above, as he had this conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three. And here we kind of get a foreshadowing to, the late, uh, to later on in the upper room discourse in John 15 and 17. This is where you get this popular phrase thrown around that's actually not from scripture be in the world, but not of the world. And here we have it kind of beginning here. We'll see it again in John 15, and we'll see it in John 17, that the disciples are in the world, but they're not born of the world. So, um, so it's here that I want to just start by making an appeal to both believers and people who might not believe in Jesus in this room. Wherever you might be in your faith or lack thereof, I want you to stare 
into the opened heart of Christ in this passage. He loved them to the end. What a beautiful phrase to contemplate. Do you want to know what the love of Christ is like? Do you want to know what it is like to be loved by Jesus? Do you want to know the quality of that love? Do you want to taste that sweet Narnian air? Here's the beautiful gust of it. He loved them to the end. What does this mean? He loved them all the way until the end of maybe his earthly ministry. Or does it go further? He loved them maybe all the way to his death on the cross. Does it go further? He loved them as he sat in the grave for a number of days. Does it go further? He loved them when he was resurrected on the third day. It goes further. He loved them when he departed the world and ascended on high and sat at the right hand of God. How far does the love of Jesus go for his disciples? Jesus loves us all the way to the Father. He loves us all the way to the Father. You see, Jesus' departure, his ascension to the Father, um, Gavin Ortland writes this, and this is a, a good thing to think about. It, it kind of encapsulates Jesus' ministry. At the incarnation of the Word, or the birth of Christ, at the incarnation of the Word, he enters a body without leaving heaven. At the ascension of the Word, the Word enters heaven without leaving a body. A little bit confusing. Let's say it this way. God enters the world without ceasing to be God, God then goes to heaven without ceasing to be man. And it is precious that Jesus, when he ascended to the Father, did not cease to be a man because what it says to us is that we too who are born from God, we too will walk his path and be brought safely to the Father as human beings, right? Our beloved Jesus loves us to the Father and him is all our hope. Our nature can be raised to God himself. We can be exodist, made up that word. Uh, we too can come to turn it at a different angle. Um, so children, catechisms, you ready? 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 Is everybody ready? All right, we're gonna do question number seven. What does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's try it one more time. You ready? We're going to do it again. Uh, what does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So I want you kids to focus again on this passage. He loved them to the end. Not only did Jesus love his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, but Jesus loved us, his neighbor. He gave his heart, soul, strength, and mind on our behalf. So verses two through three are gonna start to transition us to the second point, but we're not there yet. They're gonna start to transition us to the actions of Christ. And I just wanna make a couple of quick notes. The first one is this, the first note, uh, Judas's betrayal is mentioned. Here, Satan has placed it into his heart, uh, but Judas has already proven in the book of John to be a fraud and a betrayal just waiting to happen. We see this in John 6, we see this in John 12, and then again, it's mentioned here. But interesting enough, Judas is sprinkled, his betrayal is sprinkled like seasoning on a meat all throughout our passage. In each three parts of the text today, you'll see a quick mention of Judas's betrayal. Uh, you'll see it here in verse two, you'll see it in verses 10 through 11, and then you'll see it again in verses 18 through 19. This kind of sprinkling of Judas all throughout this display of Christ's love is intentional. Um, you will see that Christ does all the same things for Judas that he does for his disciples. And that Judas later on, next week's text, is making his own decision to leave and get up. And so it's very interesting that Jesus does all the same things here, that Christ himself washes Judas's feet and serves them. But here's the thing about it. Unbelief makes us vulnerable. Unbelief doesn't allow us to receive the love of God, even if Christ is washing our feet. Think of it this way. It is like a corked bottle. Christ is presented, 
but you're not drinking of them because it's corked. Belief uncorks the bottle and allows us to drink the love of Christ. And so this sprinkling of Judas is showing us this idea that we're vulnerable to the attacks of the devil when we are not trusting in our Savior, Christ. Um, so Christ may be presented, but he's not tasted. Faith uncorks the bottle. Second note, look at verse 3. It tells us that, um, verse 3 tells us that uh, they knew, that, the, that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things to him. This is actually a callback to John 30, verse 35, where it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And this all things includes his sheep, because his sheep later on are in his hand in John chapter 10. And Jesus loses nothing in his hand. And so what's kind of interesting here is in the verge of being betrayed by his disciples, on the verge of going to the cross of Christ, Jesus is reminding himself of two things, that his father loves him and that his father is sovereign. He has given Jesus all things, main point of verses one through three. Jesus loved knowingly. He didn't love ignorantly, and he wasn't naive in his love. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew Peter would deny him. He knew the disciples would abandon him. He knew that we would sin against him, and yet still he chooses to love. He still he chooses to serve and wash his disciples' feet. Jesus' knowledge, his knowledge drives him to love, and it doesn't just make him feel passionately or think about us dearly, but it causes him to love and action fiercely. And so let's look at our second point. See the actions of Christ in regeneration and in serving you. See the actions of Christ in regeneration and serving you. This comes from verses 4 through 11. Uh, John writes this, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean, uh, end quote. So there's a, there's a few things that I think are helpful to point out from this passage in regard to this section Note how it starts up with rose from supper. That is called the middle of a sentence. And so you might be wondering, why did you break into a second point in the middle of a sentence? It's because the points are actually flowing into each other. So Jesus' love leads him then to rise from supper and do the actions, right? So that's why we're, we're starting in the middle of a sentence. So you go backwards and you'll see it's finishing up the thoughts of verses Two through three. It's showing that Christ's knowledge-fueled love doesn't merely stop at contemplation, but gushes over the cliffside of action, like a waterfall pouring over. The old cliche, right? Love is a verb, right? In this passage, we see lots of actions of Christ demonstrating the love of Christ for us. And so now you might be looking at the sermon point up on the screen, and you might say, Based on washing feet, I see where you got the idea of serve. Where on earth did regeneration come from? Right? You might, you might ask that. And that's a, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you guys said that to me uh, before I wrote this. Um, so there's kind of two kinds of washings mentioned in this. And I think it'll be helpful if we, we look at what is the spiritual meaning. We don't want to be like Nicodemus. And we don't want to be like Peter. And we don't want to be like so many others in the Gospel of John when Jesus has a conversation with them about spiritual things, we immediately think about physical things only. Jesus always has a meaning behind what he's doing with his disciples. And so there's two kinds of washings mentioned. And by the way, I was hard on Peter. Side note, we're constantly in misunderstanding and ignorance when it comes to God. Look how Jesus gently 
corrects Peter each time. I mean, three straight, three straight times he's questioning Jesus and three straight times Jesus tells him the truth and he gently corrects him. So that's a cool thing. So anyways, there's two kinds of washings. First, there's the bath. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, right? And then second, there's the foot washing, which Jesus later commends to them to also do to others. There's a history of interpretation going back all the way to the early church through the kind of Reformation all the way down into our own day that views these two washings as essentially this, declared righteous because you're united to Christ. You've been born again, right? The second washing refers to sanctification, which is just a really fancy way of saying, now that you've been united to Christ, Christ is going to grow you to be more like Christ. Another way of saying that, Christ is gonna teach you and show you how to love, how to love people, right? And so let me just show you kind of this, this history of interpretation. Ambrose, he's a guy from the 300s of the early church. He writes this, of this passage. was overthrown by the devil and venom was poured out on his feet. This is why you wash the feet. So that in this part in which the serpent lay in wait, the greater aid of sanctification can be added so that he cannot conquer you later. So he had a kind of washing and then he had a kind of sanctification. George Hutchinson of the Reformation, this is 1500s. He actually lived into the 1600s. He writes this, instead, the sense chiefly is that by justification, his person is clean and that the one who being renewed and justified makes daily use of his privilege of not having, of, of, sorry, of having access to the fountain opened up for daily renewed remission and washing of his foul feet, aka He's been bathed, he's been declared righteous and cleansed by the blood of Christ, and now he has a daily use of the blood of Christ to continue to grow and put sin to death in his life. And here's a modern guy. Um, William Hendrickson of our time writes this, uh, verse 10. He says that such a person, being cleaned altogether, all his sins have been forgiven, needs only one thing, namely, sanctification. Now, This, in my estimation, is the way that we ought to read the passage, that it's a a washing of justification and regeneration, being born again, being brought into the family of God, and that our washing of one another's feet is loving one another and growing to be like Christ through our love for one another, right? So that's kind of how I read it, and I I kind of see it that way, but I want to make a quick point. Church history is necessary. Tradition, church history is necessary, and it is good, however, We want to see where the text says that. Where does the text connect us to those things? And so let's look at the text. Let's look for some textual connections to to, uh, show this. So I'm going to show you some connections to John 13, going all the way back to John chapter 3. The reason I'm showing you John 3, that's Jesus' discussion of being born again, of regeneration with Nicodemus. So the first one we already mentioned giving all things into his hand, that was brought up at the end of John 3, verse 35. But there's three overarching other kinds of connections that I want to point out. The first one is this. The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3 and Jesus and Peter in John 13 is structured very similarly in a number of ways. So there's some differences. Here's here's some of the similarities. Both Peter and Nicodemus miss that Jesus has a spiritual meaning behind the words when Jesus talks to him. Both conversations are initiated by the other person. Nicodemus initiates Jesus. Peter here initiates Jesus. And in both conversations, there's sets of three. Nicodemus says something, Jesus responds. Nicodemus says something, Jesus responds. Nicodemus says something, Jesus responds. In our text, Peter follows that same exact pattern. Here's the second one, and this is a a kind of subtle difference between the two chapters, but it still hints at regeneration. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and John uses night both physically, it was dark outside likely, but also he uses it spiritually. It symbolizes Nicodemus came in spiritual darkness. He came in unbelief. He came as one who was not born again, hence why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, we see night also in John 13, not in our text, but a little bit later. They're all connected. Verse 30, Judas leaves the disciples. At the time, Nicodemus is not 
in the family of God. And at the time, Judas is not in the family of God. Thankfully, I'm not going to spoil it. Maybe Nicodemus's plight changes by the end of the book of John. We'll have to see. Um, here's the third thing. Uh, both John 3, 5 through 10 and John 13, 10 through 11 allude to another passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Let me read it to you. Um, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In both contexts of John 3 and John 13, we have water and cleanness being a heavy feature. And we also have this idea of you're not going to obey unless the spirit of God comes. Now, we don't see spirit in John 13, but you will see this. So that's coming. Um, Sight in the upper room discourse in 15 and 16. Um, so that's coming. Um, side note. Well, I, never mind. I just wrote side note. I literally just told you the side note already. Sorry. Uh, forgive me. All right, moving on. I want us to look at one more thing. Let's relook at the actions of Christ before we go to the next point. What we see is Christ's chief virtue, humble love, humility, sweet humility, counting others' needs as more important than his own. Christ does this for his disciples, not even what he does for his disciples is not even what normal students would do in that culture for their teachers. Christ does what only the lowly bond servants would do, and they wouldn't do it because they're like, oh, yes, let me wash your feet. I'm happy to do so. They would do it out of a sense of duty, and yet Christ does this for his students. He washes their feet. Now, Christ does this knowingly, and he does it in love, a love that goes all the way to the end, and don't forget verses 10 through 11, our second, second sprinkling of Judas. Not everyone was clean and one of them was going to betray him, and yet Jesus still washed Judas's feet. Not all of you are in my hands is what he's saying, and yet even here, Jesus washes Judas's feet. Judas, again, can't receive this humble washing love of Christ because he has not been bathed. He is in unbelief. He doesn't trust in Christ. The bottle is still corked, so to speak. So let me ask a couple of questions uh, that we can ask. Um, have you been washed by the Holy Spirit? Have you believed in Christ? That's another way of saying the same thing. If so, continue trusting in Christ. Continue to stare at the love that loves you to the end. And the second thing I would say is if you find when you're exposed to the love of Christ, maybe you find yourself like me, oh, I'm not feeling rightly about that. I should be a lot more excited about that. I should, I should be a lot more passionate about that. I see Jesus' love on display, and sometimes it feels like my, my heart is rock cold. I would uh, appeal to you and say what Thomas Watson uh, says for that. Soak your hearts in the blood of Christ. Look at the cross. Keep looking at the cross, and you'll find soon that heart becomes flesh, right? Soft. Let's move to the action, or sorry, the words of Christ. So now Jesus explains his actions. He doesn't leave his disciples in the dark. And our third and kind of final point, we need to hear the words of Christ, which is aimed at our faith, and it's aimed at our obedience. And this is coming from verses 12 through 20. John writes this, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe me and whoever receives me receives 
the one who sent me, end quote. So after Jesus's loving actions, um, he doesn't leave the disciples in the dark depths of despairing ignorance because none of the disciples understood what he was saying. And note what he does. He asks a, a probing question. And this is always good. When you don't understand something or if you don't know if someone understood you, you can ask the question, hey, you, oh, reading the wrong quote. Do you understand what I have done to you? That's what Jesus asked him. He said, hey, I just did all these things. Do you understand what I've done to you? And in the words of Christ here, we find what must be the true culture of a church. And if it's not, it's not going to grow. And I don't mean numerically necessarily, but I mean spiritually, because we're talking about sanctification, growth, growing in love. The true culture of the church is right here. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So what is the culture of the church to be? A place that no matter how high or low you are in quote unquote society or whatever standards we want to put together, you wash one another's feet. You serve one another. And so everyone's going to line up and I'm going to wash your, that was a joke. We're not actually going to literally wash each other's feet. We'll explain that. So what does it mean, right? What does it mean to wash one another's feet? You lovingly and knowingly serve one another. Felt needs unfelt needs, right? That's what it means to wash one another's feet. Look at this. Uh, it's kind of a warning, but it's a beatitude. It's a, it's a promise of blessing, but it also kind of double ends as a warning. Um, it says this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, right? He gives a beatitude. Remember back to our first point, know the love of Christ for you. We see the word knowing or know show up throughout our passage, but back in that first section and the second section, we see knowing in verse three and we see new in verse 11. Both of them are of Christ. And in both instances, Jesus's knowledge led him to serve, right? To do something for his church, to love his disciples. They led him to deed and actions. And here Christ warns us again, Perhaps that's too strong. He encourages us. He beckons us to the prize of covenant blessing that we are blessed if we do what we know. We know the love of Christ. We're blessed when we then extend it to people, when we love people. So look at, um, re-look at verses one through three. I want to do a little thought experiment. We have in verses one through three, we have the knowledge of everything uh, concerning his hour. We have Judas's betrayal mentioned and we have Jesus's love for his disciples mentioned. Now look at verse four and let's reimagine if Jesus uh, was different. <laughs> Jesus knew and loved and instead of getting up to put the towel on, he turns to Peter and says, Peter, put that towel on, wash everyone's feet, especially mine. That does not fit with Christ, right? Christ put the towel on and washed his disciples' feet. Brothers and sisters, if we are to have a culture of a church of love that matches the Lord of his church. So what are some ways that we can wash one another's feet? Because uh, we're not gonna literally do that on stage. What does humble love look like in the context of Remedy? I jotted down just a few things that I thought of that I've seen people do at Remedy. Um, so humble love is considerate of others, even in seating. When you come into the congregation, you think about, oh, Latecomers are probably going to be more towards the back, so you try to save some, some don't, don't feel burned if, it, if that's not you. Some people do sit in the front so that there's back. Now, some people need the jumbo rows in the back, and that is totally fine, so don't hear me rebuking anybody. It looks like hanging out around after service to talk to brothers and sisters to catch up with their lives. It looks like inviting people to lunch after service to, again, catch up pray for one another, to love one another. It looks like uh, praying for one another in the service, at corporate prayer or in community groups or individually in your households. It looks like visiting one another in each other's homes and sharing food with one another as you delve into being known 
by one another it, it, in sharing Christ's love with one another in those contexts. It looks like serving your roommate or your spouse through various household upkeep items, cleaning, cooking, those kinds of things. It looks like providing meals for those who are sick or perhaps those who are going through some kind of life-changing uh, season. Maybe they just had a, a, a child or, or something else. They just lost their job. You make a, a, a meal train for them and you're serving meals. It looks like various community uh, groups starting community game nights to meet people in the community. It looks like serving international teachers at Winthrop to help and uh, helping to teach. It looks like uh, people who can speak English going to ESL and teaching English to people who need the skill. Uh, shameless plug. It looks like helping each other to follow Jesus. Now, what humble love could look like at Remedy, I'm going to leave to your imagination and your prayers. But we need humble love. When we love one another, this is a demonstration that the Spirit of God is at work. He is working through us. And this, too, is part of how we grow. So let's look at verses 18 through 19. They take a turn, and they demonstrate basically... Talking about humble love, 18 shows us the depths to which humble love will go, and 19 shows us the origin of humble love itself, where it comes from. Um, so uh, let's look at verse 19. I am not speaking of all of you. He then, I said that backward. 19 is the depths. No, 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 I said it right. 18 is the depths, sorry. 19 is the origin. So looking at uh, the verse, I am not speaking of all of you. He then tells his disciples that scripture must be fulfilled. He quotes Psalm 41 verse 9. Um, just to give a couple of background things for Psalm 41, it seems to have been written about the time in which Absalom, David's son, ousted him out of the kingdom. And there was a friend of David who actually gave him really good advice, and I'm going to butcher his name, Ahithophel, Ahithophel, Ahithophel. There we go. Um, he advised David's son against him. And so he was a good friend of David, and he actually goes to Absalom and shows him the way to how to kill David, basically, and get him out. And if, if Absalom would have followed his advice, he would have successfully killed David, but he didn't. Now, what's interesting about this is Ahithophel and Judas have the same ending. They both hang themselves, right? And so David is writing this psalm, right? His end, like Judas, ends the same way. And now there are a couple things like in the psalm that I think are very helpful that John is using it for in our context in Psalm 41.9. So the first thing is in Psalm 41, John changes the word eat to a different word that also means eat. Now you might be like, okay, who cares about that? The interesting thing about it is the word eat that John uses shows up in only one other place in John. And that's John chapter 6, which is the famous statement. If you ever want to shrink a following, you do the John 6 speech. You do the whole eat my flesh and drink my blood speech. Because by the end of John 6, almost all of his disciples, not the 12, but all of his disciples basically leave him at this. And so this word eat here, it actually quite literally means feeds or chewing and munching. And so Jesus gives this speech of you need to Feed on my body. You need to drink my blood. And now John drops that same verse right here in Psalm 41. He intentionally wanted to tie it to the feeding of Christ's body and the drinking of Christ's blood. And some people see John 6 as talking about the Lord's Supper. And so this would be an interesting tie-in, if true. Then it could be that John 13 is the meal where the Lord's Supper is instituted. And so that's why he's kind of tying it together. That's speculation. We'll leave that for another day. Um, but here's the, the thing here. Judas's betrayal looks all the more worse because not only did Jesus wash feet of Judas, he fed, he gave him bread. He gives him bread in verse 30 or a little bit before verse 30, right? He offers his body and blood to him. But Judas, though outwardly receiving both, inwardly received neither. Why? Unbelief makes you vulnerable to the workings of Satan. The bottle was corked by his unbelief. So we humbly love when we believe in Christ. So now we're getting to this. We're, we're almost there. We're almost at the origin. There's another thing in Psalm 41 that's interesting. 
Look at the word heel. That's that part of your foot. I know that. Um, so look at the word heel. The first time that heel is used in Scripture, Genesis 3:15. The second time it is used in Scripture, Genesis 25:26, when Jacob's grabbing the heel of Esau, right? In both of those contexts, what we're talking about is the promise of Christ. And so interesting enough, in Genesis 3:15, we have the serpent and his offspring going to war with the offspring of the woman, Eve, right, who is Christ. And both of them, right, the, the serpent striking at the heel, and then Christ is crushing the serpent. Now, here's the question I want you to see here. How does Jesus, our Lord and Savior, wage war? How does he crush the serpent? He washes feet. He offers himself up for food and drink. Humble love. Judas would lift up the very heel against him that Jesus just washed. And through humble love, Jesus would crush the serpent's head. And we too, as the church, will crush the serpent's head if we too have humble love. So let's answer the question finally, the origin story. What's the origin story of humble love? Where does it come from? Verse 19 says this, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So where's the origin of humble love? It comes from faith in Jesus's identity, which leads us to life. That resounding note that goes over and over and over again. And we see some things about Jesus's identity that should blow our socks off and cause us to worship couple things. Verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus is God the Father's Son. In verse 14, Jesus is our Lord and he's our teacher. And, and, and we see his comfort. We see how he teaches gently to Peter and gently to those who don't have understanding. He is the one who has sent us. He is the chief apostle, according to verse 16. But in verse 19, we have the greatest identity marker of humble love itself and its source. You may believe that I am he. In Greek, it just says that you may believe that I am. And in John, that's a big, that's another big seven. We have seven I am statements where he ties himself to things, but John actually uses I am 24 times, all of which go back again to Exodus. We're going back to where we came from, Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning book, covenant name that he gives to Moses, Yahweh, the divine name, the personal covenant name that he gives to Moses. Jesus here says that you might believe that I am. Jesus claims to be Yahweh in this passage. And so where is the source of humble love? It's in God's nature. It's in God himself. You cannot be too high to humbly love, because God humbly loves. And you cannot be too low to humbly love, because God humbly loves those who would betray him. Verse 20 concludes, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me uh, receives the one who sent me. And so when we believe in Christ, when we receive Christ, we receive the one who sent him. That's God the Father. And then a kind of secondary note, when we humbly love one another, when we receive one another, we receive Christ. And so it's this vicious cycle. We receive one another, receive Christ, receive the Father. And it just plays over and over and over again. And that's called growth, sanctification, humble love. So to finish, uh, let's conclude Narnia. I know you guys were waiting. Yes. Uh, so to kind of finish to conclude the story of Lucy and Edmund, how it, how it ends, there were grave consequences. Edmund did not believe Lucy, and yet Edmund himself does not go to the grave. Aslan gives himself for Edmund, and he tells Lucy this beautiful thing, which I think corresponds something to like, those who have been bathed have no need to be bathed again. He says this, here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died 
for you. Believe the witness of scripture for it bears witness about Jesus. And I want to leave us with a quote from Thomas Watson, who's a guy you should get to know because uh, that guy loves Jesus. He says this, but when we were engulfed in misery and were fallen to decay, when we had lost our beauty, when we had stained our blood, when we had spent our portion, then Christ died for us. Oh, amazing love, which may swallow up thoughts that he who is numbered amongst the persons of the Trinity should be numbered with the transgressors. Christ rent off his own flesh for us, having the weight of all men's sins laid upon him. Here was love sweet to the point of astonishment. We write in our letters, your friend until death, but Christ wrote in another style, your friend after death. Christ died once, but loves forever. Let's pray. Father, um, again, uh, I, I hear quotes like that. I read scripture and see wonders, and sometimes I just don't feel that I love you. And if anybody is like that in here, Lord, I just pray that you would take the blood of Christ and soften our hearts. We know these things to be true. We're like the, the man who says, help us we, we believe, help us with our unbelief. Um, Lord, I also just pray um, for anyone who doesn't believe in Christ that you would change their hearts, that you would wash them with your Holy Spirit, that you would give them the great gift of faith, that they would trust themselves to this Savior who loves until the end. Father, for the Christians in here, Lord, I just pray that we would learn to humbly love, that we would not stop at words or stop at thoughts or stop at knowing something about Jesus, but it would flow out into actions of love for one another, that we would serve one another at the cost of even ourselves because Jesus is the Lord and we want to follow him. So help us do that. As we sing, Lord, uh, give us love for you. Give us love for your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.